Welcome to Coaching Leaders, the podcast that is dedicated to helping managers become better coaches. Today's episode is powered by One Minute Feedback. If you face challenges with receiving feedback that is helpful and encouraging, then you will want to try One Minute Feedback. One Minute Feedback's cloud-based feedback survey helps you get supportive feedback from your colleagues and external partners. The feedback you receive using One Minute Feedback is unique in that it helps you understand what you should keep doing and highlight areas of your courage to grow. Hi. My name is Raf and I'm the host of Coaching Leaders Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to explore with my guest, how can managers create microculture? How can they create the environment within their four walls and create a culture that they wish to be part of? Jim has written a phenomenal book on organizational culture called Culture That Rocks, and I love that book. And he spent years coaching and developing managers within the brand that has absolutely changed my life. And that's not exaggeration. The whole reason why I'm in here is because I've joined Harder Cafe back in 2006. And I'll tell more story about it as well. But I'm so hyped to have this conversation with you, Jim, today. So thank you very much for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure, man. And thank you for the super kind words. I mean, it's... uh... I will say that my position at Hard Rock, uh, being there 21 years and about 16 of those running training and development, the high for me was really impacting and influencing other people. And who knew that this is where we would end up and, and doing something similar like this. And now look at what you're doing. This is this is the epitome. This is nirvana for me. You do one thing for somebody else. Now they're off really inspiring other minds. So I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for saying all that. Absolutely. Now, typically I kick off with a question for you, but I just want to give you a bit more context why I'm in here and how it all started. So back in 2006, I just needed an an extra job, extra bucks in my pocket to bring my family back to the UK. So I need a weekend job. My friend took me to Harder Cafe in Nottingham and I was like, whoa, you want me to work here? Like, this is like so different to what I've experienced. But what was important to me is for the first time, Jim, in my life, for the first time, I felt like I belonged. I felt, I actually, I didn't know that leadership exists as a, you know, as a concept. I was just clocking in, clocking out, doing my job, everyone else get paid, go home. And all of a sudden I could not only belong, I could contribute and I was like, whoa. So no matter what I do, I promise myself that doesn't matter what I'll do in my life, I will always create the same feeling to the person to my left and to the person to my right, which are not only enabled me today doing what I'm doing and scaling that promise, but also I want others to help I want others help to do exactly the same thing. And that the topic is exactly that. How can you just create your own four walls that people feel safe, secure, and they belong, regardless of what the culture is around? And what's, even if you work for a capital T company, the toxic company, you can still influence that. So here we are. Wow, so excited. Well, and that's exactly what I get a chance to do as well. A lot of times when I'm speaking to audiences, you would think, it would be business owners or entrepreneurs or franchisees. And I do get to do some of that, but quite honestly, it's right up the middle of the plate of the type of people that you're talking about and actually your story as well. And and it's how can, how can any manager really create something that would be spectacular in a business? Maybe that they're not really sure about uh, when they first join. I even share that in my book. And I know that, Like you said, you've had a chance to read that. I thought the same thing. You know, I didn't look like everybody that worked at Hard Rock. I certainly didn't sound like them. It was very different because I came from a different place. And so you join this this ragtag group of some of the most interesting humans that I had ever seen on the planet and wondered, how am I going to fit into this? I mean, this the, the, the spirit of rock and roll, it definitely changed me. And I'm a better person because of it. And now I get to use a lot of those same tenets in some of the other things that I get a chance to do. So your, your story in a lot of ways, Raf, is the same as mine in a lot of ways when I first joined the brand. Absolutely. So where can manager do start doing? So I can imagine there's loads of managers just like me walking into the business, being promoted, especially in hospitality, being promoted, and you have all this passion, the desire to make that difference and to be that leader that you want to be and often not be that leader that just didn't inspire you. You don't be another manager who is just pointing fingers and just commands people. But where do we start if we are not fortunate to have that culture around us or that one mentor like a leader who can guide you? Yeah, probably, um, you know, not only did we start talking about that, it's my number one question that I get usually whenever I'm speaking. 
you know, and a lot of times people will come up to me after a session and it's always the same questions. What other topics do you talk about? Do you do any uh, counseling, any consulting where you can help my business? Uh, what kind of hair care products do you use? You know, I get <laughs> that one quite a bit. Sometimes my my number one question. But the, the most important one is the one that you actually throw out there. You know, someone will say, listen, I'm a middle manager. They, they might not even have any direct reports. They're right smack dab in the middle of working on some day-to-day responsibilities. And they're going, I want to make my business better. I want to make my brain better. I want to in, influence the culture but number one, I don't really have any real power. And two, the culture is pretty toxic around here. And I stepped into this. Now, what am I supposed to do? So it's, it, you know, it's part of the reason why I even wrote the book in the first place. I, I would say there's probably a ton of things you could do. And I'll just start with, I know this sounds silly, but number one, you got to absolutely crush your current responsibilities. You, you just got to kill it every day. There, there can never be this discussion about you wanting to change things, but yet you can't even take care of your own backyard. You've got to absolutely crush the the day-to-day stuff that you're doing, get a lot of wins, a lot of W's underneath your belt, because then it gives you more credibility to want to go and change some other things. The, but, but I think there's even something more important than that. Um, I use the language, it's probably not as rock and roll, but I use the language of, I carry my weather on the inside. You know, I create my own weather, meaning wow, love it. If, if the world is toxic around me and I have this, uh, you, you sort of mentioned this. Let's say you have a boss who manages through threats and punishment and fear and you will do things this way or else stuff is going to happen to you. Like we've all had a boss like that, but uh, I think people cannot stand that anymore. It's It's so rare. It blows my mind when I see a leader like that, but they're out there. So let's say that you work for somebody like that, regardless of who he or she is. I think when it's your shift, when it's your day, when it's your night, whatever it is, you could be the bubble. You could be the the, the blocker for that person providing that garbage leadership to you. But then the way that you go out and lead other people, whether they're on the same level as you or if you if you're lucky enough to have people that report to you, you can create your own weather. You don't have to go through that same mentality or the same toxicity that exists throughout the rest of the organization. And I'll give you one example on this. Believe it or not, this happened to me at Hard Rock. So when I went from being a host, you know, I was just seating tables. I loved it. It was great. I worked in the Orlando, Florida Hard Rock Cafe. At that time, it was the busiest restaurant in the world. Uh, We pumped about 7,000 people a day through that thing, doing $35,000 U.S. an hour, which is unheard of in the restaurant world. It was fun. But I was just seating tables. You know, I was helping out the bartenders and the servers, but that was it. And then one day I'm promoted to manager. So I skipped all the tipped employees and I knew that that was going to be something unique because I stayed in my home cafe. That wasn't something that the, the brand normally did. Now, the reason I tell you that is because the general manager who was working at that time had complete say-so in all of the managers that he had hired. But I was somebody who was being imposed upon him because I was getting paid from out of the corporate support center to go do openings. And when an opening of a new business wasn't happening, I would come back and run shifts. So this guy didn't like me that much. And uh, only because I wasn't a part of his team, he didn't have any say-so. He didn't like the fact that I would come and go to do these openings. And so he was pretty rough with me, did not give me a department, did not give me any real good responsibilities. And I really had to get to the point of just saying, you know what, if I'm going to be the PMGM, if I'm going to be running the crappy shifts and this guy's not going to help me develop, then I will develop myself. In lieu of leadership, you're going to have to lead. So I sort of created this cultural bubble around me and created my own weather and said, you know, who cares about this guy? At some point, I'm going to outlast him. And I did. The guy eventually leaves and I stuck around for two decades. So I think people that are in an environment where it's not that great, I think you can still create a lot of great, not just results, but I think you can create your own culture. And I say this quite a bit. You know, a single person with a great idea can start a revolution. 
That's how countries are overthrown. That's how businesses are started. That's how philanthropic movements begin. That's how cultures get changed. So if you've got some great ideas and you need to figure out a way to share it, you know, it might be that's another suggestion for your audience. You got to figure out a way to invite yourself to the party. How do you get into the meetings where the organizational culture is talked about and not just go in there and, and bitch about it? You got to go in there with a very specific detailed plan. I have an idea. I've thought through this. It will contribute to the business uh, metrics, whatever it is. You know, I, I think if you think in those terms, you're more likely to get the, the culture change that you desire and that people actually need than just going in there and whining about it and throwing down the culture card and saying something like, you know, we should change things because it would be cool and it would be fun. That doesn't mean anything to a to an owner or a franchisee. So I think inviting yourself to the party, um, g- getting the staff involved. You know, I think you could you could absolutely endear yourself to employees by either having them a part of some decision making or seeking out feedback from them on your own leadership or how things are going on around the business. These could be formal or informal. I find the best are informal anyway. I'm getting them involved in meetings. You know, one thing, Ralph, I think that you could absolutely do if you have any responsibility in hiring, you ought to be spending way more energy and time and money and effort and rigor on hiring rock stars. If you hire the right people, if you surround yourself with an army of giants, it's going to make your life so much better. And I think, you know, again, you're saying if I'm just a manager and I've got small responsibilities, you know, not everyone's going to be lucky enough to have people that you can bring on board and then coach and counsel and develop. And and you, you basically create this awesome love affair with the brand for the employees. They can't fathom going somewhere else. And then at some point, if you're a slacker, if you don't belong, it'll be unfashionable to stick around. So you know, it, it, this all this stuff that I'm saying isn't easy, by the way. This takes time. It does take a little bit more patience. But, man, the rewards, the encore is so much sweeter when you get that thing right. So I, I know I said a lot there, but I think you can absolutely just sort of, you know, think through these things by, at the very least, you know, keeping your own attitude, your own weather, that own mentality in check, crush your regular responsibilities, have fun at work. Man, I used to remember having so many contests and games and uh, asking uh, the employees to get involved. And I would do trivia. I would mix things up and do meetings in different places. And now I know exactly what happens. I used to do this as a manager. I would go in and look at the cheat sheet. I'd go look at the labor card. I'd go look and see who's scheduled for the day and go down the thing. Oops. I know who I'm going to have to spend my time with. I know who the problem child is. You know what the employees do? The same thing. They look up at the top of that list to see who's managing. Is it going to be fun? Is it going to be awesome? Or is it going to be, oh my gosh, I got to either do extra work or this person's a pain in the ass or whatever it is. So I, I just rattled off and went off on a tangent. But the reality is there's a lot that you can do. And it does absolutely make sense for a manager to say, do I really make a difference here in the culture? You do. You can lead and you don't you don't need to wait for leadership to come along and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, man, it's time for you to, to develop yourself and to be a leader. You don't need anybody's permission to start doing that. You can jump on it right now. Absolutely. I'll go back into the hiring process in a minute because it's hugely important. But before that, I just want to touch on something that you've mentioned about seeking feedback from your people. Yes, it does start with that decision. You know, I'm going to create my own weather and, and I love it. I'm going to steal it from you, by the way. I just love yeah, that analogy. Go for it. It's not uh, trademarked. <laughs> but that seeking feedback is so important because you said get people involved in games and stuff like that, which is important. But the magic happens when you start asking for feedback on your leadership um, skill sets because you're showing that you can take it before you dish it, that you care and you listen. And if you get that feedback, you act on it, you improve, and then you go back and you thank them and you show them, this is how I improve on the back of your feedback. It really creates that bond between two people and you no longer... You're breaking that barrier between manager and employee, which is like, you know, we're here, they're there. It, it isn't. It's eye-level management to me. And so I would also advise, start asking for specific feedback from people around you. Start, ask small things. Even for like, you know, from for us from hospitality, it could be, hey, I'm working on to redesigning the bind, uh, sorry, the bar. What would be your thoughts? What would be the best way to do so? Or I thought maybe we could do this. What are your thoughts? And then you just scale it up. So seeking for feedback, hugely important. 
Well, and you know why a lot of people don't do that is because they don't want to feel like they don't know. They they don't want to think that somebody might know a little bit more than them or have a different perspective than them. You know, again, this is probably some old world thinking, but boy, is it so critical. And I think probably the biggest thing out of all of that is you might have a perspective and I might have a perspective and yours is better. And, and in fact, I might actually change my mind. And I think a lot of people, particularly in today's crazy environment, everybody seems to think they know best. They, they aren't truly listening and they're not receptive to the feedback. And I think humility comes in to play a big part on that, that, you know, if you're not willing to be humble enough to just sit there and listen and really, truly understand the other person and think, you know what, they have a great viewpoint and I, I can see myself either at least understanding them, valuing them, or at the uh, at the most, having my mind changed and going over to their side. I think that's that's brilliant. And I think the greatest leaders are the ones that sort of tap into that humility. You know, maybe not all the time. There's a time to bring the thunder as well. But, you know, I think when it comes to feedback, uh, I, I think it's brilliant. W one little side note too, you know, somebody... I can't remember if you worked for the brand. You were there when Mike Nightinger was there, right? What? Sorry? Mike Nightinger. Do you remember him? Uh, he was uh, vice president of operations for the Hard Rock Cafes. Not necessarily. Like when I was at Hard Rock, so kind of like these leaders outside of my side, I only remember Callum because the other guys, I was I was there only for a year because nothing unfortunately got shut down after a year me being there. So it was a short stint, hugely impactful, but I... Like in sort of this organizational level, I know those names, unfortunately. So, so Callum reported up to Mike uh, and Mike is a great mentor for me. He also worked at Hard Rock for about 20 years, but he tells a story of when he was at a job previous to, to Hard Rock that uh, when he first became a general manager, he was really, really tough. He was exactly the manager that I was mentioning before. He was really, he could get things done, but he was muscling the result. He was really barking out orders and treating people really rough around the edges to get the result. And uh, he had a he had a director of operations put him on what I call and what he calls the program. Basically, he had to sit down with every single employee in the business, every single one of them, and ask them one question. That was it. How am I doing for you? That was the only question. You couldn't respond. You couldn't defend yourself. You could you could maybe ask some follow-up questions to get some clarification, but that's it. You had to stand up, thank them, and that was the end. That was it. And at some point, you know, when you first start doing that, especially if you've been beating on people for so long, they're not going to give you a ton of feedback. But if you start doing that regularly, at some point, they're going to open up and say, here's how you make me feel. And boy, it was really an epiphany for him. He opened his eyes and thought, I cannot manage like this anymore. I'm really pissing a lot of people off. They're doing it because they need their job. They're not committing because of me as a leader. And it changed the dynamic of his entire mindset with leadership. So, you know, I, I'm not sure when, when you ask that question, it's not that you have to completely change, you know, start asking the singular question. But the point is, this is why you do employee surveys once a year. You want to do an annual survey or or more than that anyway, because the more times that you can ask for feedback, the more likely you're actually going to get real authentic feedback where you can change the business or your own leadership style. So, you know, I just, I, I love sharing that story because I think that's a little bit more on the extreme, but your your point is extremely valid. Boy, is it important to ask people. And when you get people engaged, what comes out of that is loyalty. They'll stick around with you a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. What I get from the, the gravity of the question is, and the, the accent goes into for you as a person, as a human being, not for, not how am I doing as a general manager, it's how me as a person are doing for you. And when you take that conversation to that level and work around that, things are completely changed. It's a whole different dimension. That's how you resonate with people. That's how you build the trust. Absolutely love it. Now we're going into the interviewing process and hiring rock stars because I'm absolutely with you. But here's my story, Jim. So my background is kitchen. So, you know, I went work through you know, a fry cook. I was <laughs> doing this uh, to pelo and spring rolls. And I just moved into being a sort of head chef uh, at TGA Fridays, kitchen manager. And I was responsible for hiring for culture and, you know, those rock stars. Nobody told me how to do it. And so what did I do? Me as a you know, former athlete, as a, as, a, as a guy in the kitchen, 
you show me what you made of. I'm not going to ask you any questions because I don't know what to ask. And if you just Google those questions from, from there, you just get stock questions and you will receive stock answers. It just doesn't lead to hiring those rock stars. And it was years after I then joined back again with Kieran and he took me into his interviewing process and I just listened and really learned how to hire those rock stars. So I've learned from Kieran. I would love to learn from you now because I know for a fact there are tons of managers out there that are being asked to interview and not given the guidance beyond Google those 10 questions such as sell me that pen or other other craps. What would be your advice to managers so they can actually hire those rock stars? It's a great question. And because I know how important that is uh, for the exact same reasons that you mentioned, I was lucky enough to be in a position to create the collateral, whether it was interview guides for staff level employees but also interview guides for managers that were coming on board. So I think people that work in training and development and human resources in general, they probably have a leg up in making sure that they surround themselves with these uh, these, these giants that we talk about, right? I think number one is I know that you have to absolutely make sure that the questions you're going to ask do match up to the job description. But everybody says that. They all do that. And I think there's a very practical, tactical technique about doing that. And yes, you should. But then I think where the the point gets missed is a lot of people don't ask cultural questions. They don't ask things that would be very specific and relevant to their organization. And it goes beyond can, you know, are you qualified to do this job? I think a lot of people sort of miss that. Interviewing 101 is, is, you know, I think this is another issue that managers who think, by the way, they're awesome at it. A lot of managers, a lot of leaders think because they've been in the business 20, 30, 40 years, they think they're an expert at it. And in fact, you sit down in a room and watch them do an interview and they are opening mouth and inserting foot and they have no clue as to where they go from question to question. So here would be sort of my guidelines. Number one, I would produce, absolutely produce interview guides. I, I would absolutely have interview guides. Even if you think you're awesome at it, you need to have a piece of paper that you can not only write your notes, because at least in the United States, you're not even able to write on an application. So you need some other physical piece of paper anyway. But having the questions there that you know you need to ask, and if you design it the right way, they're going to lead into each other. But then the second part of that is you got to have a different interview guide for every single interview. So I would not have a single question on interview number two that was asked in interview number one. You want these to be completely separate interviews. The third part to that, if you haven't already figured it out, I'm a believer in multiple interviews. I think you got to have two, maybe three, if you can do it, different human beings doing the interview. Because now you've got three different perspectives, at least in the hospitality world. I would make the highest level person being the final person doing the interview. So in a hotel, it might be the hotel general manager or the head of HR. For sure, in a restaurant, it's the general manager. You do not want her or him being the first one because then they influence everybody else. So you always want to try and get multiple interviews using interview guides, always different questions, behavior-based questions. You can look at what they've done in the past. That'll predict how they're going to solve some issues in the future. Every single one of these questions need to be open-ended so again, this seems to be interviewing 101, but it's the truth. You've got to get to the point where, one, you as the interviewer are not doing the most speaking. If you are, it's not an interview. It's a sales job. You're trying to convince them to come and work for you. You need the applicant to be doing the majority of the speaking, number one. Number two, you should not be asking a single question that just requires them to say yes or no. And if you reframe all the questions so it gets them to talk, you'll actually see their personality which for me, that culture, that character is just as important as the competence. So, you know, I just rattled off the three C's, the competence, which we all focus on every application or resume or CV. The bulk of it is on experience. We get that. But honestly, that's the least important to me. I do want to know if they can do the job. Competence is important, but I care more about the character and the culture. Do, do they have a heart? Do they do you give a shit about the company or not? Have they ever even bought anything from my business, whether it's a product or a service? 
Um, do they have a philanthropic mindset that they're willing to give back? Do they have the passion and the commitment and the energy and the drive and the determination to 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 bring something spectacular to get whoever the customer is to fall madly in love with us as a brand? Because if that doesn't come through in the interview, they have no hope of getting to the next one. So, you know, I think about all of these things. When I think about rock stars, the really awesome ones out there, they're not going to be coming to you and filling out a resume or a CV or an application. They have a job somewhere. You're going to have to mine for them. These days, you can't sit back on your laurels and wait for people to come fill out a piece of paper. As a leader, you have to keep your eye open, look for some of these people, pillage them from wherever you can or get them to convince them to at least come in to try out your stuff, whatever it is. But then these tactical things that I mentioned, they're important. Multiple interview guides, different people doing the interviews, different questions, behavioral based, open ended, cultural questions. They do the majority of the talking. When you get to that point, you can push back and go, yep, they're either a rock star or they're a lip syncer. And when you surround yourself and get the right people on that island, man, does it make life so much easier? Because now if somebody gets through the system, you know, by some sheer miracle, a lip syncer makes it through. The rest of the, the people on the island will vote them off. There's no way that a lip syncer will survive. Somebody who's just, uh, you know, they're, they're just going through the motions. Th these people will get rid of them for you. You won't have to worry about it as a leader. So again, I know I spent a lot of time on that answer, but to me, hiring, if I was serious about wanting to make an influence in the company, and remember, I was a training and development guy. I'm smack dab in the middle of the employee life cycle. I have no say-so in how people come on board or how they leave the company. I will train the best that you give me. But, Roth, you know, the best training in the world isn't going to help a bad hire. So if I was serious and wanted more influence and I had a time machine, I'd go back to be a recruiter. Because I at least felt like I can interview really well. I can get my fingers on the pulse of the organization. I know what the brand needs. And I will hand them now to whoever's in charge of training. And, and then it just makes life so much better for all of us. So long answer, but hopefully that helps a little bit. No, I will, I will stay around the recruitment a little bit longer because it is hugely important. And when I see managers, general managers and junior managers, all the businesses that I've seen so far, they in within hospitality, they tend to hire numbers because they need a buddy. So they just quickly throw the interviews, stock questions, get them in. And then they cry and suffer because he's not performing. And then, and then they're just hoping that he gets better or then they got passed through a few weeks. They don't know how to actually have these conversations and they get stuck with them. And so if the majority of your team already isn't the, hard, the rock stars, only few, they may not be able to vote them out. If anything, they will vote themselves out because why am I picking up the slack? So it's hugely, hugely important. I absolutely agree with you. And there is something that you've mentioned about going and searching and scouting for this talent. I spoke with Cody Royal and his Australian uh, football coach. And he says, businesses could adapt to what sport does. It's actually creating a draft board and having that finger on the pulse and see who's around, who's that talented. Maybe it's not the right time for me to hire you, but I know you are out there. And when the time is right, I'll reach out to you. Because you're right, those best people, they don't have to worry about the jobs. They, they are somewhere else and your job is to get them in one thing that i've uh, learned from kieran is is having this mindset when i'm interviewing someone i need to understand that i am the ambassador of my brand already which dictates already how i behave in the interview already sets my mindset in a different way and my goal is if i don't hire you you're gonna come and have a dinner with me or in my restaurant with your friends and family that's how much you're gonna rave about my brand and when you absorb that mindset it changes the way you ask questions, changes the way you have a, a conversation rather than just go bam, 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 bam. It becomes casual and you really then can focus on those behavioral questions because it's just relaxed conversation around what really, really matters. Well, what's your uh, favorite question or two that you like to ask? I know that it's you've mentioned it's different with different people, but maybe there's a certain a strategy or something that you evolve around that you always make sure you bring into the conversation. You're talking about in an interview? Interviews. Yeah, yeah, interview, yeah. Yeah, you know, I guess, again, rock and roll has inspired me. It's changed the way that I think. So not only was I lucky to have spent two decades not just interviewing other people, but teaching it. And, you know, when you teach a, a concept, 
it resonates and sticks in your head a little bit longer. So I'm probably lucky in the sense that when it came to managers or uh, future employees, hard rockers, I, I felt like the questions that we ask are totally appropriate and made sense. But I've actually used some of those same questions now in my consulting businesses. When I go and teach how to interview and how to hire with other companies that have nothing to do with hospitality, I will still have them ask some of the same questions. Now, maybe at some point, they might want to change them specifically to their company, their industry. But when you ask questions like, you know, who's your favorite artist? You know, that that fits perfectly with Hard Rock. Now, if you did this and you were working in, a, let's say, a construction business, maybe that doesn't mean a lot. But here's what I've learned is that people that are constantly job hopping and doing interviews, they're used to the same 10, 15 questions that somebody is always going to ask. When you ask somebody who's your favorite musical artist and why all of a sudden it takes them out of, I've got to prepare. And now I'm having an honest conversation with someone. Can they even mention uh, a, a musical artist? Um, is music even important to them? Because I really don't care about the specific artist. They want to listen to rap or country or rock or whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I want to see, can they think on their feet? Are they sort of like a, a tour guide? Are, are they able to be witty and be funny or tell a story? Maybe at a, a concert that they were at. What's the last concert that you went to? Again, perfect for hard rock. But I think you could still ask stuff like that. And if at least you get a manager to start thinking, I want to customize and make interviews interesting. And I want to try and get to the heart of an applicant more than the 10 questions I'm going to ask. Then at least by me throwing these things out there to them to think about, they'll be able to, to customize, individualize, personalize their own interview guides. So I asked those quite a bit. When I was in the restaurant industry, one of the things I absolutely asked every single time is, what was it like when you walked into the business? When you walked in here, when you came through the front door back to this area, this office, this table, what, what did you experience and what would you do different to create a buzz or create the environment? Now, I'm not sure they'll be able to do that. It might throw them off their feet. Maybe they'll think in terms of, oh, yeah, the music was fun. The lighting was great. Yeah, Joey up front was super nice. Uh, it was easy to find. I love this place. Oh, I come here every Friday. Whatever it is, you sure learn a lot when you ask somebody a question like that. Now, now I do that because there's a second part to it. You know that if you do your job right, if you're interviewing, let's say, 100 people, you're only going to hire 10% of them. That's just the reality. If you really do your job right and you're looking for true rock stars, this top talent, 10% is all that's going to make it through. You know what the other 90% are, right? They're not employees. They're guests. They're potential consumers. They're hopefully customers. So even though they might not get the gig, at least when they're walking out, they're thinking, oh, it is cool in here. It is awesome from a lighting, music, scent you know, whatever it is, you know, these guys are super nice. They did ask me some real feedback. So I, I know some of these questions feel like, geez, isn't that just sort of fluff? Aren't you just sort of dancing around the things I really need to know? Can you do the job? You know, is the money okay? H how do you feel about standing up for eight hours? Whatever it is. The, yes. Yeah, 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 yes. All of that stuff are the given questions. These two or three that you're talking about, I would look for an opportunity to ask them in such a way, in such a fun, interesting, open-ended way that now I'm having a conversation. And it sort of goes back to what you were saying in the first place. We're, we're just friends hanging out, having a chat. And oh, by the way, you might get this job. You might get this gig. And if you don't, we're still friends and the business is still cool and you might be a consumer at some point. So uh, again, these are things that I literally would have written in an interview guide. I do think through strategically on each one, you ought to put these in there. And again, if it's a business that uh, requires you to take a little bit more time and energy to customize something like that, go for it. But I think uh, those are some interesting ones. What's your favorite artist and why? When's the last time, you know, what was the last concert that you went to? And, and for me, the really important one is, what did you think about the place when you walked in and what would you do differently? Do, do they even have a clue? And can they give me some feedback? That would be pretty interesting. And by the way, let's say it really is an issue. I might not even know that, but here's a here's a potential, here's an applicant. They don't even work for me yet. And yet maybe they said, mm, I, I noticed this one area. I would do something different with that or maybe that table or whatever. 
what? All of a sudden, I've now got some real honest feedback from an outside perspective. Absolutely. So I, I look at those two or three as, as opportunities. And I think, think about the uh, our own careers when we're moving the jobs. Or maybe we are transferred to another business, restaurants, in the hospitality, or you find a new job, or you just cover another store. You're walking in and you see things from different perspective. Oh, that's not right. That's not right. But when you're in your business, things just kind of like become a noise and you no longer a shot. So that's another perspective for you. Now, what I would just add to your that question, which I love, by the way, you know, how, how did you feel when you walked in and what was the experience like? Yes, they may not may be able to tell me exactly what they need to improve. Or if I'm hiring a waitress, I, I don't have to scan for maybe a leadership skill set, fair enough. But you know what? If you walk into the business and you tell me what you've noticed, to me, it's a feedback that what you're paying attention to as a person, as a potential waiter, are you actually, are you talking about guests or customers? Are you paying more attention to the cleanliness or feeling and vibe? What's your language about the details or about, you know, the, the more fluffy things, quote unquote, fluffy things? That's already feedback to me who you are as a person, as a human being. So listening to those answers and you can then start filtering out simple questions, open-ended one, but gives you so much insight when you listen right to it. Exactly. Great point. Yeah, I'm with you. Awesome. Awesome. I also know that you do write a second book right now. Could you share a little bit more about that? Because I'm quite excited about it now. Well, you know, I uh, I made a decision. Thank you for asking about that. I made a decision to um, take my current book, which is called Culture That Rocks. It, you know, it's a big book. It's color. It's hardcover. Uh, I think I probably crammed too much information in there. And, you know, because culture is is such a nebulous, esoteric thing that I thought I wanted to define it first, but also showcase as many things as I possibly could. And I briefly touched on leadership. I focused a lot on service. I did dip into technology and philanthropy and hiring and retaining. But, you know, each of these chapters could have been its own book. Um, I made a decision about a year ago that I would deconstruct that book. I would break it out because I do get hired quite a bit to talk on other things than just culture. And the ones that were really focused more than anything else were around customer service, employee engagement, which is really going to be along the hiring and retaining rock stars and, and everything in between. But really the main one was around leadership. So it's great that we're talking about, you know, the, the managers and coaching and feedback, a lot of the stuff that you get a chance to play in. The name of my next book will be Leadership That Rocks. And it's all about how can you take your brand to 11 and develop and, and produce these desired results? How can you create some sustainability with the business? And it's truly about you leading and creating and maintaining an awesome culture. So that's what I'm going to focus on more than anything else. Believe it or not, it's also perfect for your audience because it's uh, it's really for new and middle managers. Maybe there might be an executive who grabs it every once in a while. There might be an entrepreneur that'll say, oh, this will be great for my managers. It's not written at the level necessarily to impact and influence these multi-million dollar or even a billion dollar owner. It's really for the people that are doing the day-to-day -day work. So if somebody, let's say, just got promoted into leadership or maybe they were a manager somewhere else and now they're taking over a new business entity, a new department, went over to a new, another company, what are some things that they can learn? So, you know, that was my main focus. Um, it also focuses on some of the things you touched on in, our, in your first question, like how do I create a microculture? I've inherited this business. Maybe I don't have that great of a boss. Maybe there is a lot of uh, a toxic environment. Maybe I don't have a lot of responsibilities. How can I make this awesome culture that you speak of happen? Um, so the book is designed to to really help that out regardless of their level. And then I think about some of the chapters and I just finished the first draft. It's off to my editor. Uh, but I do have very specific focal points and chapters around mentorship, about balancing uh, when to be humble and when to bring the swagger. You know, so I think in terms of, you know, again, everything I do is going to have some music orientation um, as you know, I do a lot of band and brand analogies. So that that rock and roll mentality is going to be there. I do talk about for leaders, how can I make real culture change? There's a lot of real life examples that I provide in a lot of stories. Some of them are from business owners, but a lot of them are just business leaders that I know. A lot of them are outside of the hospitality world. And I think I've got some sports stars, 
some musicians in there. I've got some stuff from uh, the beauty industry, from the funeral industry, from hospitality, retail, a little bit of everything is sort of in there for people that are reading it. I'm hoping that, again, it's a little bit of a roadmap um, to, to help them along their way with their career. So, you know, there, there, there's a lot of information in the thing, but it's really designed around leadership and how can I lead a brand to have a great, phenomenal culture. So thanks a lot for asking about it. I just, uh, first step, it's still probably uh, months before it comes out. If it all works out, it's going to come out in February. And, uh, you know, for people that hire me that maybe want me to speak specifically on leadership, now I'll have a much thinner, soft cover, black and white book that'll be a little bit cheaper for them. And it's specific to their topic. They don't need any help with culture. They, their service is awesome. They, they maybe think, boy, we've got an opportunity with leadership. And then there's other companies that go, we're fantastic with our leadership. We suck when it comes to service. That's where we need help. I'll have that service at Rock's book out probably at eight, about eight months after this leadership one. So there's a series that's coming over the next two years. Wow. Excited. I knew uh, there's a reason why I'm excited for it because as you mentioned, my audience and my actually goal and purpose of this podcast is to help junior managers and middle, man middle managers rather than just having those conversations or continuous conversations about what the C-level executives has to do because there are plenty of books out there and conversations about it. And when it comes to the average person, average manager who really makes that difference on a daily basis, it's like, how do I even deconstruct those those you know, concepts and, and, and this leadership. I don't even know where to start. So that's the book that I uh, I would love to have my hands on. And genuinely, February, I'll, uh, I'll get it straight away because it's it's needed. Well, thank you, my friend. I'm looking forward to to learn from it as well. From your lips to God's ears, man. It's uh, I know that this is my first book I self-published. Um, this time I'm going through an awesome publishing house up in Canada. They're called Page Two, Page Two Books. Um, so to hand this off to an editor, um, and I just sort of tweeted about this recently, it feels very vulnerable to have somebody really, for the first time, this time is going to really uh, work on taking a look and making sure that it makes sense and it's the right level. So if new budding managers, new leaders, new middle managers are, are looking for something, I believe that the way that I write is very common sense. Uh, you know, I'm a layman in a lot of ways because that's the world that I came up through. This is the world that you came up through. I'm hoping that it really speaks your language. So thanks, man. I really appreciate you mentioning it too. It's it's the first step. We'll see when it comes out, but thanks a lot. I'll make sure I get one of those early copies right your way, brother. Fantastic. I appreciate that. And here's the beauty of those who didn't work in hospitality. Now, what I've learned from hospitality and what partially it forced me to do so is to change my leadership style into more coaching one and sort of human eye to eye level because we don't have much time we always do everything on the go so you have to learn how to do things on the spot and you know in the snapshots and it creates an approach that is very casual as you also mentioned it earlier on have those conversations that are more casual and i believe that's what resonates with people i think there's too much formality and so like my whole feedback methodology is based completely on making it casual conversations rather than a formal sitting because think about your the, the best feedback that you've received pretty much everyone will tell you it was nothing near sitting down and having scripted conversations it was everything about ad hoc bam and that's just like life-changing. Yes. Um, which leads me to another question for you. Now, you spent plenty of years coaching and developing managers. I would love to hear a story or two that's really resonated with you, whether it's a funny, quirky one or something that was uh, something like a great and sort of leadership style story. I don't know. I just want to hear a great story from hospitality when you would uh, manage, when you trained others, because I'm sure there was a plenty. Oh, man. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what do you want, fun or you want uh, demoralizing? <laughs> let's go with fun. Uh, yeah, let's go with fun. I mean, in, in current times, uh, let's just go with fun. We don't need to get <laughs> demoralized. But no, let's go with fun. I've told the story uh, before that sort of made its way in the public domain. But, um, you know, probably my biggest leadership failing, which, which turned out to be actually fun at some point because it helped me on my career trajectory. There was a time where I really... My boss, my CEO of the company wanted to make sure that we had captured everything that ever existed in the company's history. So this was back at Hard Rock. Um, we were coming up on an anniversary and uh, the CEO wanted us to digitize every single piece of footage that we ever had. VHS, CD, DV, DVR. 
um, anything that was ever recorded ever beta. We wanted to digitize it like a newsroom so that we could use different elements of it, but ultimately to create a video for a conference that was coming up. Well, we had so many years. I mean, as you can imagine, 40 years of stuff that was sitting in closets that nobody had ever looked at. And so he tasked my team with the the, the group that would go and do all this work, which means you have to watch every single thing. Every single bit of that footage, you have to watch it. Now, this is a closet full, room to room, wall to wall, as much as you can see of footage. You have to watch all this. You have to not only then digitize it, it's got to go from one format to another, but then you have to do what they call meta tagging. You have to put in names. And if I had a picture of, let's say, Princess Diana wearing a Hard Rock London leather jacket while she was traveling in Spain in 1988, you, you had to write all that stuff down. You had to put down the year, what the jacket was, who the person was, where they were. That is a tremendous amount of work. But what it allows you to do is in a database, you can search it however you want to. Well, that's a tremendous amount of work that I just didn't have time to do. And at that time, I had uh, eight people, I think, on my team. We stopped everything that we were doing. No conferences, nothing except for our manager and training program had to keep going. But everybody else, stop what you're doing. Ali, Ali, income free. Everybody's now going to work on this. And we asked everybody, friends, neighbors, spouses, kids. We all worked on the weekends. I bought 40 different machines from eBay where we could transfer data. We had a whole room set up like a warehouse where people were watching stuff and taking a lot of this information Everybody was working probably 16, 18 hours. Many nights I was sleeping in the office with my with my teammates. It was crazy. And I eventually got to the point because we had to do all this in about eight weeks. I went probably uh, a week or two out from, from uh, being done, went to the CEO and uh, basically said, I think we're not going to be able to get this thing done. You know, there, we've got some good footage, but we're not going to get everything digitized. And I'm not sure I can produce this thing that you really wanted in the way that you wanted it by the deadline. And uh, he looked at me and said, well, then I'll fire everybody on the team and I'll just start over. And I, and I was like, whoa, that was, you know, I just hadn't heard that language before. And he had never really been that direct with me before. We had a great relationship and I think he was just making a point. You will get it done or stuff's going to happen. My biggest leadership failing is I went back and, uh, and sort of had some emotions with that. And I told the team, that's what he said. And it was very tough for them to hear. And I had one person who said, oh, okay, well then I'm out of here. And he left and I lost somebody on the team immediately on the spot. But I think it brought down a lot of others as well. Some of us kicked it up even a notch further and we did get the thing done. We produced four or five great videos from it. It was awesome, but it really took a toll on the team. And one of the things that I learned is you know, you got to, as a leader, there are things that are going to happen to you that two things need to come out of that. One, you need to look at it as happening for you, you know, not to you, but for you, that this is a learning experience. What can I glean from this? What can I do better the next time that I'm in a situation like this? But number two, if you're leading a team, if you have direct reports, again, you get to be the insulator. You get to be the bubble. It's sort of like that carrying that weather on the inside. Just because you might be at that moment getting beaten about the face from your boss doesn't mean you now need to perpetuate it and take it out on the team. You've got to take that, suck it up, put your big boy and big girl pants on and still be positive and go out there and lead the team and inspire and motivate them. So, you know, I start with the story that's a little bit negative because it was a bummer for me to go through that. And I lost an invaluable employee. You know, it's the first time I really lost somebody to something like that. But that's because it was my fault, you know, and so I have to look in the mirror and say, I can do better than this. And so, you know, I always thought I was a pretty positive guy anyway, but I think at that moment it changed the dynamic for me to say, I need to lighten up. I do not want to, I don't want to start managing through that same mentality of let's muscle the result to get things done. I I, I just don't want to be that guy. I wanted to be the leader that people respected and admired and loved and wanted to be around and hopefully help them get to whatever career level they wanted to versus the one who was constantly rapping on us because we weren't good enough, not fast enough, not enough you know, attention to details or whatever it is. So, you know, the, the lesson that I learned from that is 
Um, I needed to lighten up. I needed to have some fun and, and, you know, you can still hold other people accountable, but you can also be the protector for that. And then along the way, it allowed me to think, you know, I need to spend more time with the people that I work with or the people that are working for me. I need to spend more time with them. I need to spend way more time and energy on not just hiring the right ones, but doing everything I can to retain them, to get, you know, to, to love on them, to reward them, to recognize them. Um, because I understand how important, not just financially, but how important it is to get people to stay with a company longer. I know for a fact, for a fact, I would see this at Hard Rock all the time. I would go and look at the top 10 Hard Rocks that were crushing it from year on year results. Not a one year budget, but constantly the trajectory was constantly going up. When you would look at the top 10, they, I absolutely think that, and maybe not 100%, but I bet you nine out of the 10 of those were also the ones that had the lowest turnover. They had the best retention and something happens when you get people to stay with you longer, awesomeness occurs. So that was another thing that I learned after I lost a person or two, you know, we probably lost a step from our productivity. And so I'll do anything at this point to get people to stay with me. But on the front end, I mean, obviously you got to hire, like we said, the rock stars, but you know, that, that was a learning environment for me. Um, I'll tell you a fun story. It has nothing to do at all with, with coaching and development, but I knew I had this great opportunity to go and open up the Hard Rock Hotel in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. So as we speak, I don't know when this will air with your audience, but you know, there's a hurricane that is hitting the United States and it's in an area where there was our, close to the area where we had Hurricane Katrina, which is the worst natural disaster we ever had in our country. Uh, we had opened up the Hard Rock in Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, it was two days away from opening and we had money in the machines and all the memorabilia on the walls two days away from opening. And uh, the hurricane came through as a category four or category five, which is the highest that you can get. So we had to evacuate the city. We had one security guard that sort of stayed there to, to keep an eye on everything. But the bottom two floors of everything was completely wiped out. You can look from one end to the other and there was nothing there but the cement pylons. Everything else, the memorabilia had floated out to sea, the money that was in the machines, all the machines are down in the water. So in, in this city, the, uh, the the casinos, which is what this was, it's a hotel, casino, there was a cafe, there was a live music in there, but the casinos are not allowed to be on land. In that particular area, they had to be a floating barge. So all of this water that was hit from the hurricane destroyed the bottom two levels. So that was sad. Uh, sad enough. But then two years later, we had to open back up, which we did. We opened up on Lucky 7707, which are really cool numbers in the casino world. But here's the story. So my um, the, the, the second time that I was flying up there and going to look at the, the brand new building that we had just opened and we had hired all the staff and the training again, um, I was going there with my director of operations of the hotels. Um, we had two people that were sitting with us that we found out later were were Playboy bunnies. They dressed up in the outfit and were in the casinos and they recognized us when we were walking around the floor. And it was so wild to see that. But all of these celebrities that were performing, Kid Rock, LL Cool J, Cindy Crawford and her husband. Her husband was was helping us create one of these cool vibe bars that we had in the place. Um, Chris Daughtry, the musician. These were all going on with the, the grand opening and it was fun. The day after the grand opening, we're getting on a little airplane. It's my friend who's head of operations and all of those same people. We, Kid Rock, LL Cool J, Chris Daughtry, Cindy Crawford's husband, you know, all and, and the two of us. And we're sitting on the plane. We're about to take off. And I lean over to my buddy. I go, you know what would make this trip even more fun? And he said, uh, that those two playboy bunnies, if they were, and I was like, yeah, and sure enough, they came onto the plane. We're all in this first class area. There's nobody else on the airplane. It's a very small plane before we fly to our destination. And uh, we're having conversations with rock stars. No matter where I looked, there were people that were famous and celebrities. And I leaned over to him and I said, you know, if this plane goes down, nobody will ever be talking about this. We're the least important people on this plane. It'll all be LL Cool J, Chris Daughtry, you know, and these other two guys. That's how it works out. So that, you know, I've met a lot of celebrities, a lot of rock and roll artists, but I will have to say that day we felt like rock stars. I mean, it was as close to 
being in the environment without actually being a musician that you could ever get. So that, you know, that one has nothing to do with managers or feedback or coaching or whatever. But I will say that the opportunities that you and I had an opportunity while we were working at Hard Rock were just, you know, it was the best of times. And even now I can look back and say, it, it totally rocked my world. It changed the way I think about things to the extent that I get a chance to talk about it with other people now. Yeah, so for me, I was nowhere near your level, but uh, at Hyde Park, uh, London, uh, we were there, and I was voted as the you know the best sort of chef from our kitchens. There were like two, three kitchens. There were three VIP and two others, and I was voted like the VIP of our ones. And I got to see Aerosmith for free, so everyone had to work hard. And I was like, you can rough and go and watch. Well, I was excited about it, although it's not the type of music. That is actually mine. So I felt a little bit bad because those guys were like dreaming to see Aerosmith. I knew who they are. It's a great experience. Life even better. But I was at the time like, you know, a clubbing guy, not a rock star, kind of like, you know, rock and roll. I was like, damn, it's great. I got to see them. And it's like, I can now tell the stories because I've literally seen them, watched them live. But at the same time, I was like, ah, they, they wanted more than I do. But that's just as, as close as I get kind of like, wow, really experienced that rock and roll and need by those rock stars. So other than the fact that I left the year of the last um, concert series we did in Hyde Park, so we called it Hard Rock Calling, as you know, I got to go to all of those and I did watch Aerosmith. I was in front watching that happen and they brought out Daryl McDaniels with uh, Run DMC and they had been reunited uh, with their song uh, Walk This Way. But, you know, there were some moments backstage that are fantastic too. And I clearly remember being at Hard Rock Calling in one of those same you know, the same moments where there's 80,000 people listening to whoever the artist is, but you're backstage and you get to hang out with some rock stars that you would never think about. And I remember one very specifically where uh, Tom Jones, who's a very much older rock and roller, was hanging out with Justin Timberlake, also with Natalia Imbruglia, who was dating Prince Harry at the time. I watched Prince Harry and Natalie Imbruglia, the, the musician, they were actually making out backstage with Tom Jones and Justin Timberlake having a conversation with Amy Winehouse going back to get a little bit of food, but but obviously some alcohol as well. Um, and I was very lucky. As you said, I got invited to go backstage, uh, actually on the side of the stage to watch somebody who was performing. And it was Neil Young. And I'm a huge Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, and sometimes... Young, I love when all four of them are performing together. But Neil Young is a standalone, like you and Aerosmith. It kind of wasn't my thing, but somebody invited me to go do it. So I said, okay. I was backstage and I'm all by myself. There's nobody else around. And Paul McCartney from the Beatles walked up with his daughter, Stella. And I was blown away. And I just watched him. He, you know, he just looked at me and he was nodding his head. And uh, he was watching. He was in front of me. He was watching Neil Young. He was singing along to Neil Young's songs and he had his camera out taking a picture or a video of Neil Young on stage. I have a picture over his shoulder doing watching him do all these things. And at some point he turned around and looked at me and said, pretty cool, huh? Like, you know, it is it is Beatles voice. And I was like, yes, it is. This is the coolest moment ever. Nobody was ever around. It was just. You know, again, it was a cool moment and I was just thinking to myself, nobody will ever see this, but it was a fantastic opportunity that again, that the Hard Rock brand just allowed you to do. And again, you do sort of, in a lot of ways, take those for granted. But at the end of the day, people who work for Hard Rock and you talked about caring, you talked about yourself, we are better people having gone through the experience, whether you're there for a year or whether you're there for 21 years. It doesn't matter. You really learn something about yourself and you take those skills and hopefully you get to to perpetuate it with other people that you get a chance to impact and influence. So, boy, I had some of the greatest times of my life working for Hard Rock. That's for sure. To put it simply, love all set of all, right? No doubt. Still sticks with you today, right? Yeah, it guides me. It's simplicity and, and the impact in that one sentence explains everything and it's everything that we ever have to do as a human beings, I believe. It's that simple to me. Yeah, it res it's bigger than a business. <laughs> mm. We're reaching towards the end, towards the end goal, uh, to towards the deadline. I just want to just go quickly back to now it makes sense to me when you talk about treat your employees as they are volunteers and they will stay with you longer. It, now it all makes all the sense when you explain your philosophy. And I wish if you're the manager listening to it, embrace that mindset and things will just follow 
through. You don't have to be that hierarchical manager. Just treat them as, as volunteers. Treat them as human beings and they will reciprocate back. So Jim, thank you very much for today. I really appreciate that. I will drop all the relevant links down below, whether it's about your podcast or your book. Uh, where are you the most active on social media? Now I get to hang out with you on, on Instagram and LinkedIn. You've mentioned Twitter. Are you all over the place? Or? I am. You know, I play in all four of the major ones. There's probably some others. You know, I'm not, I, I haven't jumped into TikTok. I don't do a ton on, <laughs> on Spotify these days, but uh no doubt I'm on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and uh, and Twitter. I mean, those are the four. And even when I put content out, I probably put it out. I try and be specific on each one, but I will hit all four of them when we launch a podcast yeah. or if something major is going on in my life. But, you know, probably Facebook and Instagram, um, which are now the same company, basically. Um, I, I make sure that I put a lot of that stuff out there. And, and honestly, it's the way that both my business world and my friends and family stay in touch. I believe in something called personalization. It's my personal and professional life. I've mixed them together. I want to be completely transparent and authentic. So when something's going on, I put it out there and some things are for people and others uh, not so much. And I'm okay with that. But uh, man, I really appreciate it just uh, inviting me on the show. And hopefully I'll, I'll come back and we can talk about some other things if you want at some point. Absolutely. I'll wait for the uh, book to be launched. And thank you for working with me today. I appreciate it. You got it. it, my brother. We'll talk to you soon. Rock on.